Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to another program of Green Left Radio. And for your presenters today, we have myself, Jacob Antwafa, and... And myself, Felix Dance. How are you going? Yeah, we're all pretty good. Um, I'll just go, before we get into the program, um, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation, I'd like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So good morning, everyone. And um, yeah, for your presenters today, we have myself and we have special Yeah, Felix is um, stepping in today. Um, I'm back. I've, uh, I was a presenter for quite a while last year sometime and uh, had to take a break because of work, but um, got a bit of time off right now. So it's good to be back in the studio. Yeah, and uh, I guess I mean, um, what what a kind of um, usually we spend the first part of this program discussing some um, headline news, and I guess what it has been one of the kind of more interesting things that has sort of happened in the news in this past week for you, Felix. Well, I mean, the obvious one that uh, that leaps out at us is the Grace Team uh, bong incident, which uh, I thoroughly enjoyed. So obviously, there's a drug legalisation issues here and uh, shaming of young people for experimenting with drugs, taking drugs. And I actually think that the main takeaway from all this is how little outrage it's caused. So I really think that this shows that we've kind of moved on from you know the old days of uh, where it could kill a career or like seriously dent someone's reputation. And now everyone just accepts it. And I think that that's an important step forward. And especially since... A lot of figures in the media and, as some have pointed out, politicians, uh, I absolutely am convinced, take much harder drugs than uh, marijuana. (laughs) And, well, I think, yeah, one of the kind of interesting things about that story was basically how it sort of happened was essentially there was a big there was a bit of a scandal. Essentially, the Daily Mail, everyone who everyone probably (laughs) knows, um, how rotten and right-wing um, the Daily Mail is. Um, the Daily Mail had unearthed this kind of photo, and then they had att- there was this big attempt to scandalise it. Even Scott Morrison, I'm pretty sure, commented on it. In fact, he said something along the lines of, you know, like how it, it kind of came... Well, I don't have the exact quote of me, but it came off as basically like a, a sort of like one of those sort of comments that politicians or, you know, boomers sort of make. Um, so to speak, but it sort of like has no relevance, on, resonance. It has sort of no resonance to anything. So basically, you know, he tried to, he attempted to condemn it, but basically had no support. Really. Yeah, yeah. No exactly, point. exactly. Yep. 
And I think, yeah, it just definitely reflects, I think, how far things have advanced in terms of, you know, the, um, the debates and discussions around drug, drug legislation. And, you know, it wasn't um, that long ago that this issue, you know, and in fact, this issue is still used as a law and order issue. It's used as an issue to oppress um, community um, people of colour. And it's... And especially striking in the US that it is drug legislation is still used to target African American communities. It definitely is, and even in Australia, where we think that we're you know a lot more you know even-handed than Americans, but uh, in Australia, drug legislation is just used by the courts and the criminal system in order to oppress um, people who are at the margins of society, and. It's incredibly hypocritical of anybody that, um, you know, that, that partakes in a culture. And we do live in a culture where, um, comfortable sort of middle class people partake in drugs all the time. It's just an accepted part of Australian life, really. And yet the same, the, the same, uh, laws, well, the same, you know, the same act actions are used against people at the bottom of society. And so many, People are locked up in prisons because of drug use or drug possession, and you know that's why that's a really important part of why the campaign for legalisation needs to progress. Hmm. Absolutely, and I guess going into some other kind of news stories that have been kind of happening from the kind of past week. One of the most exciting things, and in fact, it happened on my birthday. My birthday was actually Happy on... Happy birthday, oh, Jacob. My birthday was on Tuesday, the 15th of February. So on the 15th of February, um, as we kind of reported in past weeks of the program, um, 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 nurses, essentially thousands of nurses and midwives gathered outside the New South um um, New South Wales Parliament, as part of a statewide um, strike action for safe staff-to-patient ratios, and essentially they defied um, a Industrial Relations Commission order not to strike. Speaking um, speakers, um, as reported from Green Left, um, speakers recounted their stressful work days. They said years of cost cutting had led to unsafe work conditions for staff and patients, and that this had only been made worse during the COVID-19 pandemic. The public system is at breaking point. And essentially, the um, the, um, the, 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 the strike was is calling for safe nurse-to-patient ratios, a fair pay rise, and a COVID-19 allowance. Now, of course, um, um, none of the, the government has not responded to any of those demands at this stage. So, obviously, this strike is obviously going to be part of, hopefully, that something that could become something bigger. Because I think, you know, taking stock of... This kind of whole, the whole impacts of the the COVID nineteen situation, you know, even though right now I guess in terms of the current situation right now, while it's true that yes, hospitalizations are stabilizing, ICU numbers are going down, like you know that's all well and good, but you know from the perspective of the government, I think it would be the absolutely wrong lesson um, from this government. And to basically say, okay, well, now that this is over, we can wash our hands of this and we don't have to do anything about investing in our public health system, etc. Like the actual stress, like at the peak of this Omicron wave, we can't actually forget the actual stress and pressure that it put on the public health system. And in fact, it actually, in a sense, contributed to lives being lost. And in, and in fact, 
you know, the the real kind of lesson of this COVID-19 pandemic has really just shown us how essential um, our healthcare system is and how essential a well-funded healthcare system is because more than less, you know, and even before, prior to COVID, people, you know, people were dying um, of, you know, all sorts of different conditions, etc. that, you know, a much better healthcare system are much better funded because we can't forget that the healthcare systems, a lot of our public health systems were struggling even prior uh, to the existence of COVID. Yeah, I think like one, one way to think about it is that uh, if you think about uh, goods that travel around the world, uh, you, we've got this, this recent um, trend towards just-in-time processing. So warehouses are as small as possible and uh, everything is expected to arrive just as it gets sent on to the next place. And, uh, you know, the entire thing is maximally efficient to maximise profit, basically. And that that's like a lot of the way that the goods have got around the world have been directed like that. And, of course, now that we've got um, supply issues, that's been messed up. But with the health system, because of the last 20 or 30 years of absolute massive cuts to the health system and reorganisations of how it runs... We've essentially had the same thing where, you know, there are just enough ambulances to take people to hospital and just enough hospital beds for the predicted number of sick people, you know, slight peaking in the winter for the flu season. And everything is just stripped back so it could just take the just, there was just enough resources in the system in order to to keep people relatively healthy. And then something comes along that's just outside the ordinary and the entire system is under immense stress. There aren't enough nurses, beds, ambulances, or just any other healthcare resource because there's no like, there's no play in the system, and all of that, all of the ability and the resilience of the healthcare system has just been, just the resources sucked out and yeah, basically used in other areas of our society for profits. And um, one of the other kind of more one of the more despicable kind of things is most of our most capitalist the majority of capitalist politicians throughout this kind of whole pandemic have kind of done this whole tokenistic kind of thing of you know oh we have to thank our healthcare workers they're they're such heroes you know the amount of resilience that they've given throughout this whole process throughout this whole pandemic is just incredible you know we what we we have to honour and respect our heroes and... I predicted from the start that all of this so-called, you know, like hero worship and thank yous is a way of getting in front of industrial demands from the nurses. And I'm glad that, you know, they're not just saying, oh, well, they thanked us, so therefore, you know, it's all good that we get completely smashed by the, the, the cuts and the situation in COVID. It's good that they're fighting back, fighting for the rights fighting for some conditions that are actually reasonable for these workers. Yeah, and also actually one of the most prominent slogans um, that was present at the strike was that we need more than thanks. So, yeah, yeah. the fact that that was um, such a prominent slogan at the protests, you know, is a, is a good kind of sign. And I think, yeah, um, and in fact, actually, this probably would be a good segue into kind of our um, the next kind of part of the program. Um, we were originally going to try and get, secure an interview with uh, a Canadian activist, um, a live interview, actually, about the Freedom Convoy protests. Uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to get that organised live, but 
um, stay tuned that probably in the following program or maybe at a future program, we'll definitely be having an interview on on that. And in fact, yeah, it should be a very fascinating one. In fact, we're going to be doing an interview a bit about to discuss the can- um, what's been happening in Canberra in regards to the development of the far right. Now, I was going to... Um, Green Left and Socialist Alliance had organised a forum last Friday, um, COVID-19 Disaster, Workers Fight Back. And what I'm going to be playing is going to be playing a recording of a speech from that public discussion. And this was a public, um, this was, uh, this was a speech by Andrew Hewitt. Now, Andrew Hewitt is someone we have interviewed on Green Left Radio before. Um, but he is the Assistant Secretary of the Victorian Allied Health Professionals Association. And in fact, yeah, the, the speech that he gives here is actually a very good, um, sort of summary of you know, the kind of, the actual kind of state of um, the public health system and, yeah, and basically giving a very good inside sort of take on the state of the public health system and what, what how it's being impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic and also more than that, also speaking a bit about what are the solutions and measures that need to be implemented. So, yeah, I'll just play a quick announcement um, and then we'll go on to playing that speech um, following it. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Thanks for the opportunity to speak, and, and Paul's probably um, regretting now that he missed the turn of the dice because we're probably going to overlap in terms of what we say because we've, we've been in a lot of the same rooms and a lot of the same meetings, and, and because we're both in health unions, we've been experiencing a lot of the same problems throughout the pandemic. But uh, what I wanted to do first was just give a bit of an overview of where we're at and sort of how we got there and, and where we're going to from here. So it's important to remember that um, Australia was very poorly prepared and probably the world was as well, pretty poorly prepared for the pandemic when it hit. And we had at the outset fairly inadequate protections and they were based on what the, the WHO was, was the guidance from WHO and the Commonwealth was setting the parameters based on what WHO was saying and then the states were applying their own level of uh, interpretation of that as well. And if you think back to the start of the pandemic, we weren't wearing masks, we didn't have vaccines, um, and sadly, it was being treated as a, a, a virus that was spread mainly through surface uh, contact um, spread, whereas we know now very well that it's, it's spread, the majority of the spread comes through uh, through aerosols, so it's through, through the air, through the virus circulating through the air. And unfortunately, it took quite some time for that to to be recognised. And if you 
if you think back, it wasn't actually until um, early July in 2020 before Melbourne introduced its first mask mandate. And to put that in context, that means that there were, there were healthcare workers in hospitals and healthcare settings and the aged care facilities who didn't have access to masks um, up until that stage because it was really only those people who were working in the EDs or the ICUs and there weren't a lot of COVID-dedicated wards then, but they were starting to develop, who were getting access to, to proper PPE. So the rest of the healthcare sector weren't getting it. And it was really only when, once it became clear that there needed to be a, uh, a mask mandate across the public sector that we managed to get it get to get those protections in the health settings. Now, that's not for lack of the unions trying. We were calling for uh, better protections right from the start. And it was very clear that part of the problem was that they just didn't have enough of the, the, the PPE that we needed. And so they almost set the... Um, the requirements for the PPE based on the availability rather on rather than on the level of protection that was required. And it really wasn't until October in 2020 that Victoria was the first jurisdiction in Australia to formally recognise that the spread of the virus was um, through airborne spread. And that really only came about, again, through pressure applied by the unions, largely through what they developed, um, established uh, healthcare worker task force. Uh, so in Victoria, there's a healthcare worker perfect um, Prevention and uh, infection prevention and wellbeing task force that was set up as a response to the uh, the devastation of the healthcare worker um, sector during wave wave two in 2020. But the unions had representation on that task force, and we were applying pressure to get formal re- a recognition of airborne spread. And then we finally achieved that, and then we finally achieved proper respiratory protection. And they started doing. Um, fit testing so that to make sure that the, the respirators, the masks were, were well fitted and appropriate. And there was education around that. But up until that's late 2020. So we were well into, um, 20, into the pandemic before that was happening. And, and we were meeting on a regular basis with the, the government and Department of Health and the PPE task force and, and calling out from these, these protections from early on. Um, and it was very clear that they just didn't have the resources to do that. And even once they had the resources, there was still a reluctance. And, and my personal belief is that some of that was, was um, about the, the, the expense. They could just see they were just hemorrhaging money um, in, in the pandemic response. And, and it, was, it was pretty clear that they, even between the, the first wave of the pandemic and the second wave of the pandemic, and then again after wave two coming into 2021, we were saying, are you stockpiling? And, and, and it took some time for them to realise that this was going to keep happening and that they had to actually just commit and, 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 and get the supplies in place. But what happened in 2020, we ended up with 4,171 healthcare workers who were infected. Now, up to 80% of those infections occurred at work. And that's, that's, that's a, that was a disaster for the workforce. And for all those healthcare workers that were infected, there were thousands or tens of thousands more who were furloughed as a consequence of being close contacts. And that just devastated the workforce. And that made it very clear that, that they couldn't continue as business as usual. And, and so, you know, the, 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 there were changes coming out of that. And now we see that the, the furlough um, guidance is, is reduced from 14 days down to seven days and, and the definitions of close contacts have all changed. And so there's been all these changes, but all of that's been driven by the lack of workers, the lack of availability of a workforce and, and workforces that, that are burning out. So on the back of four, over 4,000 getting infected in 2020, we had over 5,000 infected, nearly 6,000 infected in 2021. Now, we're not, we don't have the same level of um, certainty about how many were infected at work and how many were infected in the community there because 
by the end of 2021, we know that we were losing, we were, the system was being overwhelmed and they weren't being able to, to test and trace and, and identify and there wasn't that level of certainty about where they were happening. But from our point of view, there was still a huge component in the work environment, but despite the fact that we were getting better protections, it's very clear that the workplaces weren't safe enough and that the levels of protections weren't broad enough um, or, or the access to the PPE uh, weren't good enough. Um, the workforce shortages um, weren't just about the pandemic. That was it, it was really a case of exposing long-term um, vulnerabilities in the system. And the, the health system in particular, and as Sue referenced, you know, this is not just about a, a workforce shortage in health. It's a workforce shortage across all sectors. But from our perspective in health, it was a case of running a system too lean for too long. When the pandemic came along, um, it, it just it just highlighted that we were uh, extremely vulnerable in terms of our workforce. And once the tap in terms of the ability to bring in overseas workers uh, was turned off or even to move around workers around Australia, once that stopped, suddenly we didn't have enough uh, workforce to keep the system running at the same level as what they, re they required. Um, despite that, the, the health, a lot of the health unions have been through bargaining um, through this period and we're still not seeing a reflection of that workforce shortage uh, in the outcomes in terms of what, what we need in, in, in terms of the bargaining outcomes. So, you know, the power really should be with the workers at the moment because there's such a workforce shortage. And so we should be able to, to, to use that to, to leverage um, better outcomes. But the government is, is still resistive on that, on a lot of that, that area, in that area. Um, so what have we done well over that period? Well, I talked about the unions, um, Health union, Victorian health unions being involved. The Victorian health unions have actually been very collaborative, and we've managed to um, to get together uh, on a you know a regular basis. We've managed to caucus about specific issues. Um, we've we've put in um, letters to the government. We've put in um, submissions to the government on a collaborative basis, and that's given us a, um, a significant amount of um, uh, clout and, and and added to the ability for us to actually influence what's going on. Despite that, we've still been, um, to some degree, you know, held at arm's length, and there's still been a, uh, a breakdown in terms of um, the outcomes. And so, while we've been able to influence them, they've n never ever gone to the level that we've actually we've actually needed. Uh, the lines of communication have been have been much better than they would have they had been prior to the pandemic in terms of we've ha had much better access to employers and to the government. But again, it doesn't necessarily translate. Um, to the better outcomes, and sometimes it can be, you know, very one-sided in terms of, um, you know, the, the outcomes. Communication has been uh, highlighted as, as critical through the pandemic in terms of uh, not just the communication we're talking about with with government employers, but through to through to the workers. The workers that you know desperately need to know what's going on. They need to know um, good, clear information, and they need to know that they can trust that information. And the unions have been largely, um, in Victoria especially, a, a, a resource for that, and hopefully that's, that's helped benefit the, the workers. Through those engagements with the government, we've managed to, as I said, improve the PPE throughout the, um, throughout the pandemic. We've managed to get better leave entitlements, um, such as paid, uh, paid special leave, when workers have been off isolating, uh, either infected or 
as close contacts. Um, we've been able to get leave entitlements if um, the healthcare workers have had a reaction to their vaccine. So vaccines have been a requ- uh, requirement, as we know now, in the workplace. So we've managed to achieve some some better outcomes, but there's still there's still a lot that we you know that we've that we could do, do better with, and the government could do better with providing. Um, we managed to get some extra resources in some areas, but again, as I said, we're, we're still a long way short of that. And we've been able to um, enforce some employer accountabilities, um, and that's been that's been really important. So, you know, union collaboration, I think, coming out of this is, is, is something that we need to really, really maintain. So what's gone badly? Like, as I said from the start, the, the preparation was was terrible. We were, we, were, we were behind from the start, and we've been trying to catch up ever since. And even when we've had periods of um, effectively um, quiet times between the waves, instead of keeping the, the, the foot on the gas and, and, and pushing forward in terms of improving the protections and improving the situations in the workplaces, um, there's been a sense of, oh, you know, we, we got through that one and, and, and a, almost a sense of relief. And, and then we've allowed ourselves to be on the back foot when the next waves hit. So preparation, you know, we can't we can't assume that at any stage that we're out of this, we have to just keep, you know, keep pushing forward. Um, we've done it particularly badly, and we've and it's and it's been exposed, and there's been royal commissions, um, and they've highlighted the failures. But the aged care, disability sector uh, have have been absolutely you know devastated by the pandemic. So people in vulnerable situations have been suffering the greatest throughout throughout this process, and and that's been a uh, you know, a huge failing um, in terms of the, res- the pandemic response, and something that we have to, we, you know, we have to do better. And even, you know, in terms of the aged care sector, we had in Victoria in 2020, we had, uh, I think it was over 600 um, tragic deaths in the aged care centres, um, predominantly all in the, the in the federal under the federal jurisdiction. Yet here we are again, you know, 18 months later, and we're still having uh, huge outbreaks. In aged care settings, and it's it's a case of well, did we not learn anything from what's gone on before, and have we not improved the situation from what was going on before? Um, community care, you know, people in the community have, um, that have been relying in the past on the care that comes to them, that's fallen down in a lot of in a lot of areas. Um, so there are a lot of people who have not been getting the care that they need or that they would normally get, and that's going to be you know a huge a huge problem and a huge burden going forward. Uh, the, devol- the de- devolved nature of the healthcare setting in Victoria, for those who, who are unaware, Victorian hospitals are basically run as their own little independent um, uh, company, and each one of them is effectively just that a company. And as a consequence, the government doesn't have a, the direct line of control that you know that they should have. And as, as a consequence, that's meant that there's been um, there's over 80 different health services throughout Victoria. That means that any given time, we can have 80 different interpretations or 80 different applications of whatever it is that the government's um, trying to do. And that's been a huge problem for us. Uh, that's led to things like consultation um, breakdown, um, hospitals implementing and changes without consultation, government implementing changes without consultation. That's something that, you know, that, that really leads to a lot of, a lot of um, fear and anxiety in the workforce, but it can also lead to, to bad outcomes because if there's not the adequate consultation, we know there's not the adequate risk assessment, then we know that there's not the adequate um, mitigations put in place. And so that's something that's, that's been done pr- pretty badly. Um, elective surgery, that's something that's really suffered as a consequence of the, of the legitimate need 
to focus the energy on the the acute COVID response. But again, it's a, it's a sign of a system that was, you know, that's been at its at its limit for, for far too long, and as a consequence, there's a, a huge section of the the health sector that's been left behind. And th- you couldn't have this discussion without talking about the private versus um, the public health system. And the fact that we've got this this split um, split system. Has, has, has led to a lot of uh, ongoing problems um, and that can be highlighted through the pathology system where a large part of Victorian pathology has been privatised. Even the pathology that services um, the, the major public hospitals in some situations is, is a privatised service and once the system came under extreme pressure, uh, that that started to fail and the testing started to, uh, to fail us. And so that's something that needs to be looked at going forward. Um, I'll... I wanted, I, when I was preparing to, to talk to you tonight, I, I found an article which I can't help but want to uh, share some of with you be, because it just highlights the fact that while all this is going on and this workforce is, is being, being decimated, there are those who are actually benefiting out of, the, this, out of this misery. And, and Oxfam published this letter, just this article about a month ago, and it's all about billionaires, how they've managed to profit out of this, out of the pandemic. There's a new billionaire minted every 26 seconds, sorry, sorry, every 26 hours as inequality contributes to the death of one person every four seconds. And the world's 10 richest men more than doubled their fortunes from 700 billion to 1.5 trillion at a rate of $15,000 per second or $1.3 billion a day during the first two years of a pandemic that has seen the income of 99% of humanity fall and over 160 million more people forced into poverty. That just brings it into harsh focus that the workers who have been carrying the can are being coming out of this worse off than those who uh, basically ha- carry the wealth of not just of the country but of the world. And that's, you know, the inequality that that, has allowed to uh, create and, and uh, accentuate is, you know, has to be looked at. In terms of what we can do um, in, in terms of on a, a worker level and on a local level, we've got to be looking at um, the whole the policies in terms of uh, how to improve our protections and how to improve our, the well-being of the workers uh, we've got to have a, a, basically what we call a vaccine plus policy. So we can't just rely on the vaccines. The vaccines are critically important, but we can't just rely on them and, and the ongoing boosters as, as they, you know, hopefully improve the vaccines with, with each different variant. We need to clean the air. And the best way to think about this is, is to think of the disease of cholera. You know, cholera is a waterborne uh, virus um, that used to devastate um, communities. And we fixed that. By sanitising the water, we have clean, clean drinking water now. So we don't know we don't have cholera in, unless it's in a, a situation where there's uh, um, some sort of natural disaster that impacts on the water sources. We need to think the same way with with the air. We need to be cleaning. We need clean air to breathe. So we, to do that, we need um, to bring in more outside air into the buildings. We need better ventilation. We need uh, filters, HEPA filters in the in the rooms in indoor spaces to 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 scrub, to clean the air, and wherever possible, we need to be um, meeting or working or activities that are outdoors because that's that's a much safer environment. Uh, we need better masks. Uh, we need um, 
uh, the P2 or N95 masks wherever, wherever possible in environments where we can't get clean air and when we're in, uh, exposed and at risk. And, and that, that goes to, you know, majority of workplaces. Uh, you know, if you're in a close, close working environment in an in- indoor space, then, you know, you should have access to, to better masks. We need better supports. We need to see um, paid leave for people who are sick uh, or who have to isolate. And, and that's, you know, fundamental. And, the public health system has managed to achieve that, but that's a very, very small part of the, um, the, the workforce, and we need to see those people who need it most have access to, to better uh, supports and better leave. Um, we need free testing on an ongoing basis. We need vac- vaccine equity, and not just within our community, but around the world to stop the, the continual um, spread of the virus, which is going to lead to more and more variants. And, and from our point of view, we, we need to see safe workplaces. We need the unions have a really key role in this to implement these changes and to ensure that uh, we hold employers accountable and governments accountable uh, and ensure that we've got the safest workplaces that we can through, through these mechanisms. Um, I think that'll probably, I'm not sure what time, how long I've been going for, Sue, but I think there's probably plenty for me and I'll, I'll hand back to you. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Oh, wait, what? Did... All right, you are just listening to um, Andrew Hewitt um, from um, Assistant Secretary of the Victorian Allied Health Professionals. We'll just get a play. We'll just play a quick announcement, um, and then we'll go on to covering some news from um, the pages of Green Left Radio. You are listening to Green Left Radio. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers since 1976. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. So, drawing from the pages of Green Left, um, I was going to start a bit, I guess, a bit of a discussion um, drawing on this article um, titled Religious Bigotry Bill Defeated, No Thanks to Labor. Now, this... Um, Coming, um, this, this article was um, written by Rachel Evans and Alex Bainbridge. But to start off the kind of discussion, um, as the article kind of opens up with here, the trans and rainbow communities celebrated a victory when the religious discrimination bill was withdrawn on February 10th. And as we kind of had discussed on previous programs where we've covered the religious discrimination bill, you know, there was there was an argument that this bill was kind of purported to defend people against discrimination based on their religious beliefs. And now, of course, yeah, there's a certain sense that people should should be protected um, um, against discrimination on the basis of their religious belief. But really, the actual fact is, this whole the whole basis of the bill, as the article kind of argues, was to mount a, ca- a political counterattack against the successful marriage equality campaign. And really, the motivations of Morrison was to aim 
arm right-wing bosses with an enhanced sword to discriminate against workers and students in faith-based schools and other organisations. And I guess the other thing is um, there was also a whole issue of Morrison wanting to uh, a political kind of wedge um, to trap Labor in the context of the plummeting support for him and the coalition. And now I guess one of the, the kind of crazy kind of things that has come out of this story. Now, it was a great it was a great thing that happened that the bill got withdrawn. In fact, I'm pretty sure it might have happened. Yeah, it probably happened around last kind of week. And. The Labor Party is now sort of claiming that um, responsibility for putting the bill onto the back um, boner. It claims its tactic of speaking against the bill and moving amendments worked. But, of course, this is where the strangeness about it, because as the article kind of points out, Anthony Albanese, the opposition leader, promised that in advance that Labor would vote for the bill even if its amendments didn't get up. And, of course, this claim that, you know, that they tried to amend the bill to the best of their ability does not stack up because it was really, it was independent MP Rebecca Sharkey's amendment to abolish the right of religious schools to discriminate against gay and transgender students that received support. And the what um, the other, the kind of other kind of, um, the other kind of element is Labour apologists sort of claim that the party could, um, could not risk losing support from faith communities who support a religious discrimination bill. But supporting a religious discrimination bill completely ignored the reactionary context in which this bill was proposed. And accommodating this concerted pressure can only strengthen the um, political right. And, yeah, I guess, I mean, maybe I'll pass it on to Felix for a bit of comments on that. Uh, I like, for one thing, I could not get my head around whatever it was that Labor their tactics were telling them to do because it just it was a complete mess as far as like they their strategists obviously think that they're the smartest people in the room and the bee's knees but i don't know it uh it was a mess but um it does it does have all the hallmarks of the problem with politics at the moment you have an absolutely spineless labor party who are completely obsessed with sidestepping the wedge from the liberal party it's just like they they are so fearful of any culture war issue they'll just do or get turn themselves into knots to avoid it and of course like there were, the marriage equality plebiscite that we had was a huge success in a lot of ways and one of them is that i really think that it, there, there was quite a high support for marriage equality before the plebiscite but after the campaign I really think a lot of opposition just dropped away. It, they, people just realised how unreasonable it was, you know, when they started thinking about it. And I think that the tactic of the coalition to use it as a culture war issue completely backfired because no one, no one cares that much in the community that they really uh, want to suppress uh, gay and trans- transgender people. I just, I just think that sen- the sentiment is obviously there, especially on the extreme right. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, hurt and suffering out there. But, like, the broad community sentiment is is to is to be inclusive. And I think that, yeah, that, that's the ultimate lesson of this. They couldn't drum up a culture war issue about it. And they were defeated. And the uh, Australian Christian lobby have even said out loud that uh, they, uh, without the ability to discriminate against trans- transgender people, the religious discrimination bill was completely worthless to them. Mm. So <laughs> it shows that they were trying to push a really fringe perspective 
and make it mainstream and catch Labor into a cultural war issue that they would have to fight and uh, distract from the government's woes. And yeah, I think it fell apart. But no kudos to Labor whatsoever. They have they've mm. loved this one. Yeah, and I and I think that the other the other thing, and just drawing a bit more from some of the article that. Um, it's pointed out that um, the Shadow Home Affairs Minister, Christina Keneally, said that Labor would bring its own religious discrimination bill if it won, if it win one government this year. And it's just a classic example. Like, Labor Party throughout its history just has a long record of capitulating to coalition's wedge tactics, including on refugee rights, um, same-sex marriage... Uh, the Northern Territory intervention. Tax cuts. Um, yeah, Morrison's tax cuts to the rich. Um, that was the next um, line. <laughs> and, you know, really, it, it kind of like, when you look at this history, it really makes it difficult to accept this line from Labor that its support for the religious discrimination bill was primarily about tactics. Um, and in actual fact, like, for the Labor Party... The Labor Party wants to claim it's like it's a friend of the LGBTI community, and in fact, yeah, I, I out of out of I have to acknowledge that you know Daniel Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, actually did have a reasonably good position on this, and in fact, he actually called on federal Labor MPs to um, vote against it. But of course, that is obviously in the context of the fact that in Victoria. <coughs> Uh, the Labor Party enjoys a very large level of support from the LGBTI community or the progressive community kind of like in general. And, and as, as Felix said, it's, um, it's very important that, you know, there's such a mass high level support for LGBTI rights. And I think that, that all that credit goes to not to these politicians. It actually goes to the fact that to the legacy of people who campaigned so intensively for marriage equality, which then raised the envelope in terms of um, LGBTI rights. And yeah, as as Felix said, like, um, like just imagining a hypothetical scenario. If I, I imagined a hypothetical scenario of let's say just a random public school or random private school sacking a teacher because they were queer, I could just imagine that there would be such a high level of community outrage that it would just be untenable. Like, the idea yeah, of doing... whether or not there's a law about it, it yeah. would, there would be a, a huge mobilisation against that in defence of that teacher yeah. or student. Yeah, it just would be increasingly sort of untenable. And in fact, yeah, and in fact... You know, probably these situations are probably a bit more normalised in, say, a country like the United States, or at least sections of the United States, um, because they're obviously the United States is a very diverse country, and some more conservative. And I think there's like an element by which you know um, the the conservative right wants to have the same weight and and um, political weight that the conservative right have in the United States. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's like every single culture war issue, you can see it coming. It's like a tidal wave. You see it in America first, and then a couple of weeks later, it lands in Australia. And so I'm sure that all the culture war strategists in the coalition party room were just like checking up what's happening in America and trying to import it here. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Hmm. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. 
And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe the number is 94198377. You've been listening to the same. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it isn't stuck. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And for our first interview for the program this week, uh, we are very happy to have Reese, um, who is actually going to be, uh, who's our special correspondent in Canberra from Green, uh, for Green Left. Um, and uh, what about, and we're having, we want to have a bit of a discussion with him about the, the recent kind of freedom convoy that has sort of made its mark in Canberra. Um, in fact, it's been inspired by the Freedom Convoy, which is a far-right kind of movement uh, in, um, in, in Canada, which we're hoping to kind of have an interview on our program about at our future program. So, yeah, good morning, Reese. Yeah, good morning, Jacob. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and I guess the first kind of question um, I want to kind of ask, um, Reese, is what can you tell us about this so-called Freedom Convoy in Convoy? And I guess based on your... Some of the observations that you've made, because from my understanding, you you've observed um, the protest quite closely. What um, what can you tell us about some of those observations? And I guess what what do, is this politically rep- um, what does this politically represent? Yeah. Um, so last weekend we uh, they they you know came and occupied a big chunk of the centre of Canberra around the lake in the Parliamentary Triangle, and they were protesting up at Parliament. But it wasn't like a regular protests. They were spread out all over the city centre. You couldn't really miss them. Um, they were, you know, blocking traffic and doing that sort of thing for a bit of a, uh, a jolly uh, from time to time throughout the day. So we went to check it out um, and and sort of had a, a look around for a while. It looks like there are about 10,000 protesters, and that seems to be the number everyone else is 
putting out, but that was what I estimated uh, on on the day as well. Um, and yeah, they, they were all obviously very much a convoy from out of state. There were just cars parked everywhere, all over any bit of green space, any bit of um, uh, you know public parkland or whatever where they could fit. Um, and you know, it didn't feel like a tightly disciplined protest movement like I've been sort of used to seeing. Instead, it looked more like a, you know, it, it had this sort of silly uh, carnival or festival atmosphere, you know. So there were people, there were people just randomly walking around the city centre, blocking traffic in in small groups. There were people up at Parliament House, and I understand they had a bit of a stage up there, uh, and were doing more of a conventional rally. Uh, there was a, a big group of them walking across the uh, like the bridge over from Parliament House down into Civic, like the Canberra CV, CBD. Uh, and they were just, you know, they weren't being sort of led. There wasn't like a strong force of protest marshals or anything I can see. Instead, it was more like uh, just, you know, everyone came with their particular issue to this thing. So, uh, you know, slogans and signs and, and, and everything of every every sort um, with, you know, in, people operating in sort of small little uh, little groups um, and kind of just down together by by all being there. Um, from I'm um, from afar, like without without being able to do an in-depth study of it, uh, it looks like that it, it sort of gripped up anyone with a an anti-system or a counterculture protest message, um, you know, related to the vaccines as like the the big um, you know information point being mandatory masks and mandatory vaccines, oh, and then they. Names. Then they've sort of gone. Anyone else with anything else to chuck in, uh, you know, come along too and add your add your slogans and whatever to our pile, and we'll just have a protest for the sake of it. Yep. All right, Reese, it's Felix here, also in the studio. How are you going? Yeah, hey Felix, I'm well. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for your description of the uh, Freedom Convoy. So um, obviously, we've also been hearing about news reports from Canada, and uh, we're going to get someone, as Jacob talked about on the uh, program, uh, to talk about that. But how much do you think the Canadian Freedom Convoy has influenced the Canberra one, and what are the other origins and influences um, that have led to it? Yeah, so um, there's definitely a bit of a, a copycatism. Um, I expect something like this probably would have arisen here uh, when you've got people like um, George Christensen and uh, and Craig Kelly and so on, you know, trying to to build up a movement ahead of the election. But, you know, we, we saw Canadian flags. Uh, we definitely saw a few deliberate references to, you know, look, at we're doing the same thing as them, um, as well as some Trump flags and, and that sort of thing as well. There's, I, I think it's definitely cross-pollinated through the same uh, sort of online, you know, forums where they're seeing the same kind of rhetoric that's coming out of North America. You're seeing the same kind of ideas, the same kind of arguments and slogans. The, the groups that actually compose, you know, or the, the big ideas that actually compose the movement and the origins of it, um, sort of most most recently, it's obviously the anti-vaccine um, crowd. It's got this sort of um, significant and notable fringe of people doing everything from, you know, I'm opposed to vax mandates through to the, the virus doesn't exist or the virus is some kind of conspiracy or plot to put, you know, microchips in your blood. Like, we genuinely saw lots of that material scrawled on cars being handed out. Um, the sort of uh, sovereign citizen movement, if people know about that, um, which is uh, kind of a sort of a libertarian um, right-wing movement to 
to say, you know, the state has no legitimacy, um, but it's based on a very certain set of, like, cultural or subcultural um, in-group jargon. Um, they were clearly there and clearly trying to spread their message to a lot of people who just come along um, for a more you know, for more mainstream reasons being against the, the vaccine mandates. Um, in, in short, it seems to be a culmination of, of all of these little um, fringe, mostly far-right groups. Um, we've heard plenty of reports that there are people from uh, more of the, the further-right, you know, hardcore nationalist groups there as well, um, but it was very much more a hodgepodge, and I think it's the, the big danger is that it's providing people with an opportunity to, like, mix around in that, um, in that soup. All right. Well, um, I, there was a particular question I was going to kind of ask, but I think you've kind of covered um, kind of the question in terms of like a lot of your kind of response to the question. I was going to potentially just ask you a bit of a question about the iconography and the demographics that were observed the protesting, but you've kind of covered that quite um, well. Although if you have a bit more comments on the demographics, that we good. But I think it could be connected to this oh, next question. I no, I, to... I could, I could definitely go into that yeah, because. Please, go on, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what was strange about it is that, um, so I, I remember the anti-reclaim, or so the, the Reclaim Australia protests and, you know, the anti-reclaim counter-protests in about 2015, uh, and that had much more of a, you know, a clear hard-right bent. What we saw here was a much more, you know, you, you had um, primarily Anglo-European Australians there, um, primarily older, middle-aged, not the kind of people you see involved in, you know, this kind of large-scale protest, but definitely swinging um, a bit older. And you had people coming there in, in all, you know, identifiably family groups with, like, kids and even dogs there, um, which was a bit weird. In general, you saw a lot of, um, you know, a lot of Australian flags, um, a lot of Australian flags flown upside down, symbolising distress, like that's a bit of a uh, an, in, an in-group um uh, you know, symbolism that they, they appreciate. A lot of the old Australian red ensign, which is, uh, like popular in the sort of nationalist and, and patriot and, uh, sovereign citizen movements. Um, we also saw some like Croatian and, uh, Serbian and Macedonian flags out there. In general, I think the attitude was like, you know, bring whatever flag is special to you so you've got something to wave. Um, not people... connected to the, uh, fire right, um, the, uh, the nationalists elements of the sort of Serbian... Um, there, there, was no, there was nothing else strongly to indicate that, but you do have to assume that when a bunch of people are explicitly bringing their own nationalist flags to, a, to something like this, um, it has been, you know, it is, it, is, it is a deliberate move to signal that kind of nationalist politics. Um, you also saw a lot of um, signs saying, hands off our kids, which is... Like on the face of it, it seems to be a fairly reasonable thing to uh, demand. You know, not not. I don't want my kids um, mandatorily vaccinated if that's sort of the the, per- the thing that's brought you to the protest. But that kind of save our children, hands off our children um, messaging has a much longer history in the QAnon sort of conspiracy. Yeah, Pizzagate um, and all that. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. We like Pizzagate, like where where they like to accuse sort of anyone that opposes them of being a pedophile. Um, because it's a very powerful insult, it's a very powerful slur that um, you can throw around. And so it definitely has a bit of that uh, in its DNA as well. And it provides a good plausible deniability where you can, you know, first you make the, the maximum attack of calling someone a pedophile. When pressed on it, you fall back to, oh, I just want my kids to be safe. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, it sounds like quite an interesting array of sort of 
not just right wing, but right of centre and um, conspiracy laden insignia and iconography there. Um, there. There was also there's also a fairly large component of people that you would associate with that sort of hippie alternate lifestyle. Uh, um, yeah, like the the wellness set that seems to be intersecting with the. Uh, you know, yeah, sort of like exactly. Yeah, Jordan which Peterson is not types and things. Yeah, yeah, um, which is not something you traditionally have associated with, you know, the other the other side of the really far right stuff. But it appears that there's been a a lot of cross pollination and a lot of blending of those uh, yeah, attitudes and approaches. Yeah, definitely which been is, realignment yeah. a little bit in those sorts of attitudes. Like, and that does lead into the next question, which is, um, do you how do you see on your analysis that um, uh, on how the far right represents this in uh, the Australian context. But, uh, you know, also like around the world, we're seeing a resurgence of this kind of movement, um, sort of really tapping into sort of a, a section of working class people, um, but also with a lot of conspiracy theories and um, and elements of the far right, but not working entirely together with far right nationalist type movements that we've seen in the past. What do you think this? Where where could this lead in your mind? Um, it could be it could be very dangerous. I think a lot of the animating you know impulse the the, the reason behind this is the reason behind a lot of classic um, upsurges of the right the far right like this, which is that people are looking around. You know, we've had the the um, whole coronavirus crisis. We've had the, the financial crisis um, associated with that. In many cases, especially internationally, people are still reeling from the GFC over a decade ago. I think this is a new layer of people sort of looking around and going, well, things aren't as nice as they used to be. And I've been promised by our political class that things you know, have to keep being nice forever uh, and capitalism is the best system. I think this is a lot of people looking around uh, for a, an alternative to that and, you know, instead of um, being exposed to serious scholarship or, or, or in-depth analysis, uh, what they've done is they've seen the first thing someone's offered them on Facebook, grabbed it and, and run with it, you know, like a, like a drowning man clutching at a straw. Uh, so it's like, it's, 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 you know, there's a lot of potential there for people to, to realise uh, and to, to have that formed into a more productive anti-capitalist politics. On the other hand... Uh, I think a lot of people have been sort of sucked into this movement and, you know, we can see it kind of growing. Um, people are looking for answers and there are plenty of prophets and crooked politicians out there happy to stand up and be the one to say, yep, I've got all the answers. It's, you know, it's vaccines, it's Bill Gates, it's the lizard men, it's whatever. Uh, and that that's where I see the, the big danger in this kind of movement. Uh, and the fact that we've seen it globally indicates that this is a... It's a phenomenon that appeals to a lot of people. It's not just localised to any particular country. It's actually got this uh, this international kind of bent because people are seeing the same thing all over the world in response to a global crisis of capitalism. Mm. Yeah, well, um, thank you very much for that, Reese. Um, I think we'll conclude this interview um, now, um, but I guess I'll make, I'll make one comment and then just give you an opportunity to kind of make a final kind of comment conclusion. Is, um, you know probably one taking on one of the kind of points you kind of said there, that's where it's kind of it's quite bizarre and quite amusing to see, you know, you see the likes of the United Strayer Party and Clive Palmer, you know, wanting to pander and cater to this um new political movement which is you know, sees itself as anti establishment. But then of course there's a certain irony when you have someone like 
Clive Palmer, Craig Kelly, all signing up because, you know, more or less, these people are actually part of the establishment. And in fact, um, Clive Palmer's probably motivations for supporting this movement isn't probably because he, he thinks that, um, he's necessarily against vaccine mandates or he's against vaccines. He just wants to push his political, um, political, um, politics because he knows that this politics is going to be more favorable for him getting more mining projects approved by any sort of capital, any future liberal capitalist government. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're, you're right. His aim is more to, you know, uh, degrade the information environment so nobody can trust, nobody trusts anything they read. And in the chaos, he can get his dirty deals through. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think ultimately that's the best kind of uh, antidote to this stuff is that, you know, I don't think this kind of politics has the ability to achieve much because they don't have, outside of the very narrow demand of ending vaccine um, mandates, which will, you know, it'll happen eventually, I suspect. Outside of that, they don't have any great vision, right? And so I think this is this is where the opportunity comes in for those of us who do have a political vision, those of us who, who do have a serious and, and deep analysis of what's going on, why it's bad and how to change it. And I think that's that's where we're going to have to start with the you know the boring low level politics in in organizations like unions and community movements in trying to build a genuine and viable alternative to the status quo rather than you know a bunch of memes on a facebook group yeah well thank you very much um Reese. um yeah this has been a very uh, a very insightful interview and discussion um thank you very much for being on our program well, thank you very much for having me thanks Reece. see you jacob see you felix all right, we're just speaking to Reese, um, our correspondent from Canberra, about his um, analysis of this new kind of freedom, con- this freedom convoy movement in Canberra. Now, I'm just going to go. I'll play. Um, I'm just going to play a quick announcement, and then we'll go on to the Green Left activist calendar. You're listening to Green Left Radio. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, I thought we'd just do um, the, um, the Green Left kind of activist calendar, and which would make a number of announcements on different political events that are happening throughout um, throughout the week. So the first event I just want to kind of highlight is on on from Friday the February 18th to Friday the March the 4th. Um, there is the Transitions Film Festival is happening, which is actually showing different kind of films and documentaries on the topics around sustainability and climate change. So yeah, if you check out the program, I'm sure there might be some. I haven't actually looked at the program, but yeah, there's I'm sure there's uh, be some interesting kind of things um there. Then on Sunday, February the 20th, there's going to be a volunteers meeting, Socialist Alliance election campaign. Um, Socialist Alliance is standing Sue Bolton in the seat of Wills and Felix Stance and Angela Carr in the Senate. Hear from the candidates and find out how you can get involved in the campaign. Lunch and drinks available and from 12, uh, this will be at 12.30pm at the Harry Atkinson Arts and Crafts Centre, Lake Grove, Coburg Lakes Reserve. And then um, there will be a symposium, um, Remembering Stuart McIntyre at Room 253 um, Arts West Building, North Melbourne, University of Melbourne, and this event is also online. There will be an important public forum, um, Thursday, February the 24th. Um, OCOS will cost the earth at 7pm. 
on Sunday, February the 27th, there'll be a, a mark. March for Justice Rally, which from my understanding, I don't have any particular kind of details in it, but if you look on the March for Justice Facebook page, um, there is, there, there, the plan is that it's going to be a look, um, a series of kind of dispersed actions across the city, but there should be one in the Melbourne CBD, um, and I know there's definitely going to be one in Geelong. On Tuesday, um, March the 1st, there's a rally protesting for refugees is not a crime. Drop the fines, and that's going to be happening at 9.30am at Heidelberg Magistrates Court, Chicka Street, Heidelberg. And then on Saturday, March the 5th, there's going to be a rally, Free the Refugees, at 2pm um, at the State Library, organised by Refugee Action Collective. And then on Tuesday, March the 8th, there's going to be a rally in March, International Women's Day at 5.30pm at the Treasury Building at Spring Street in the city. And then on Friday, March the 25th, there's going to be a global strike for client, people not profit, and that the details are still to be announced there. So yeah, that's all the kind of events that are kind of keen. And yeah, I'll just go play. Um, we're going to go have a bit of a discussion, give a bit of a, I want to give, um, actually this will probably be a good opportunity actually. I kind of want to give a bit of a plug, um, to the fact that FreeCR today, right now, is, we're going to be, is going through its subscribers, um, drive. And I just want to sort of make an, a note that, um, you know, for, for any, for anyone who's kind of listening now, um, you, if you, if you are to renew your free CR subscription or join up as a new subscriber this week, and you'll go into the, um, into the running, um, for a hamper created by Living Coco, supporters of community owned and run media. Living Coco empowers communities in the Pacific Islanders through um, fair ethical trade, creating indigenous foods, biodynamic cultivations and cultural health systems. They create bespoke and organic um, kakul products from the Samaritan Islands, so support them and freeze out at the same time. So, yep, you can call now at 94198377 or renew online at freecr.org.au. And in fact, yeah, it's part of this subscriber drive. We are trying to, our, the goal of FreeCR is to aim to reach 1,000 subscribers in 2022. And of course, yeah, we need your kind of help, um, to do it. So yeah, I just want to, I'll play, I'll play a few subscriber announcements and yeah, hope, um, I think, yeah, definitely we want to keep community radio in air. Maybe Felix, actually, you have a few comments you want to add. Oh, I just think that, um, like 3CR has been a terrific resource for, uh, getting the word out there and to giving voice to uh, parts of the media that uh, don't get their fair airplay in the mainstream, and it's a great it's a great way to for community activists and organisations and movements to coordinate and to hear about each other, and we can um, work together on all sorts of important causes. And without 3CR, there's it's just very difficult to. To be able to to get together with everybody and um, and push forward to change the society in the way in the way that we need to, so I think that we've all got to get behind 3CR and to make sure that it continues running, and uh, it, they rely on all of the subscribers and listeners to keep going. So it's up to us to to keep it on the air. So uh, yeah, please support. All right. Well, I'm, I'm just going to, I'll go play, I'll, I'll play, I'll play a quick few number of, um, green, um, of subscribe to free CR kind of announcements. And yeah, hope any of our listeners who aren't subscribers already, um, to free CR that you consider becoming a subscriber today. And yeah, I'll just play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio on free CR 
855-AM. When disaster hits a group of islands scattered around the ocean like Tonga, it is evident how the responses and actions can be difficult for these multitude of uh, beings have no idea what to do, plus no equipment or tools to work with, and the impact will show on everything, physically, mentally, financially, and people, due to being uninformed and unequipped. So maybe this is, um, this is a question for the Tongan government. How can you manage situations like this better in the future? Subscribe to 3CR, informed, articulate and alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio and we have our second and final guest for the program this week. Um, we're very happy to have a, we're having a live interview with Andrea Whitcomb, um, who is, um, the president of, uh, the, um, the Community Gardens, um, association and Andrea has been part of the ongoing fight um, to save um, the Collingwood Community Gardens. In fact, some of our listeners are probably quite familiar that the state Labor government is basically attempting to bulldoze um, the Collingwood Community Gardens, um, which has been which has um, caused the furore of a lot of um, residents, um, by which Andrea is part of that kind of resistance. So, yeah, good morning, Andrea. Sorry, good morning, Andrea. Good morning. Oh, sorry, just, I forgot to, um, there was just an issue there. That's all good. I can hear you now. Um, so Andrea, um, I guess the kind of first kind of question, I've given a bit of introduction that you're, you're part of, um, this campaign to save the Collingwood Community Gardens. And I guess kind of want to hear, you know, your perspective on why, why is it, um, this community garden so important for the residents? And yeah, maybe kind of start off from kind of there. Yes, okay. So really, um, my answer to that would be because we have built and sustained a wonderful community that really represents all that is best about the Yarra um, larger community. So um, I, I guess that what I would say is a lot of style gardening because it brings together a number of people who did not know each other when they took up their plot, but essentially slow down from their everyday lives while they're gardening. It gives a kind of a space for people to actually build relationships over time because you begin to talk with people from all different backgrounds, some who might even speak very little English, some who are very different from a very different socioeconomic background to yours, different cultural ethnic backgrounds. And all of us embody and have within us different life experiences, different sets of knowledge about gardening 
And in talking to one another, we exchange all of that. And doing that, we build relationships. It's just kind of human nature. So friendships have been built across all of these social, economic uh, and cultural um, what might otherwise be differences. It's not that we've become the same. It's that we have an interest in that difference and we try to understand one another. So it's kind of like you're building social inclusion, you're building social cohesion, and you're also building belonging because there are many people who come to Garden in the Plots who've had they've had difficulties in their lives, you know, you know, mental health issues, um, just different, a, a complete range of things. And in coming there and gardening and slowing down and breathing in the fresh air, listening to the birds, looking at the blue-tongued lizards who are part of the kind of ecology that we cultivate, um, and, and then just listening to another, their they're kind of, their health is restored. And all of that has been broken down with what the farm has done to us in the last two years. And all we wanted to do in mediating and trying to negotiate with the farm, and in the beginning even trying to get them to even respond our questions, which they did not do until forced to by our first political campaign, and then even through a, even only through a mediated um, medium through through Dwelp. You know, all we wanted to do was to say, look, if you only let us manage this better, we could actually increase the social diversity and inclusion practices that. We know allotment-style gardening can sustain. Allotment-style gardening around the world is known for bringing people together and building communities, building cohesion, building a sense of belonging. But they just don't want to listen because Mm. they have their own vision. And I guess that gets into kind of the next kind of question. You've given a kind of very good kind of summary of, you know, why this community kind of garden is important and you know why and i guess i want to kind of hear about what can you tell us about the actual campaign that has kind of developed in response to um save this garden and i guess you know mm. tell me about you know who has been involved and i guess what are the current kind of actions that are happening from my understanding there was a picket line kind of happening right now with residents coming but of course there has been some new developments since then so i think some of the um some of the um the character has possibly changed so great want to hear from you on that yes sure so I guess that, you know, when it, when we were first locked out back in um, May, June of last year, our first response was just incredulity and total shock, you know. And so um, we started gathering with Zoom, um, the, the, the platform that we've all sort of found during this pandemic. And um, so I, I guess, first of all, it was just shock and and expressing our feelings and then slowly a group of us emerged um, that started um, organising an actually more structured campaign and so I suppose what we did first of all was um, 
a petition which raised over 3,000 um, uh, signatures, which we then sent to the farm and to our local representatives of all parties, including the city of Yarra. We, um, every farm member can, um, and we are all farm members, can um, uh, request a list of the membership of the farm because the farm is, after all, a membership organisation. And we vote to all the members of the farm with our position. Not everybody liked that, but on the whole, the response was very positive. Um, and um, we got on to 3CR yourselves and um, other forms of media campaigning. We, we the, I think the ABC, Channel 9, Channel 7, all did stories on us. That put the wind up Richard Wynn. And it, at that time, when the farm was not responding to our inquiries and requests to have a conversation with them, that Wynn came in and... He didn't talk to us, but he requested the senior public servant um, for Crown Land in Dwelp to mediate a conversation. We went along. We had three... So there were three people from Dwelp, three people from the farm, and three people from us. And at a certain point in that, when... Um, the other thing that we did was establish the association, and that's when sort of I began to come in more strongly as well because I'm, I was voted in as its president. And so, and the idea with the association was that we would be able to manage the farm if we could win the, the garden, sorry, not the farm, the, the gardens as an association, which we could not do as sets of individuals because of um, risk management and sort of, well, legal, legal stuff. So um, so then we started negotiating with Dwelp. That was very hard for quite a... with the farm via Dwelp. Um, and Dwelp really is the Crown um, Land Manager. And the whole argument was around public um, public benefit. You know, how, how was our vision a better vision of enabling public needs and therefore public benefit for that? plot of land. The gardens are 3% of the children's farm. We eventually got to a point where we were invited in December to run, um, to develop our own management proposal and give that to them at the end of January. First week of February, we were called to a meeting by Connor from, who is the um, CEO of the farm without dwelt. And basically told, guess what, guys? We now have $165,000 from the state government. We also have a, a second work safety report that means we have to complete the works, make the site safe by the 15th of March. We're clearing the site next week. Uh, you need to tell us what you want out of the site, and that's it. Bye-bye. If you want to, you can be part of the consultation as to what happens next. So you can imagine our funeral because we were negotiating in good faith with the committee of management and DWELP and busted our guts essentially over summer developing our own proposal for how the gardens could work and it was never even entertained and we were asked to do it. Yeah. Which I just think is an act of extreme bad faith. Hmm. 
And then that's when we mobilized again and we thought, right, okay, um, we took, need to try and win this battle. Of course, we haven't. They are right now clearing, but we are raising people's awareness as to how much bad faith has gone on here. And, of course, you're right. We are on the war now. We might have lost this battle, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to give up our argument that allotment gardens are the best way to sustain and build the local community. And the key difference here is that the farm is actually, and they've explicitly said this in emails to us, they're not interested in the Yarra community. They're interested in the general public. So this fight is really about a version of the public as everybody and a version of the farm and the gardens in particular as actually being young anchored in the Yarra community. Mm. And yeah. um, we're, we're running a bit out of time now because we've got to finish our right. program now, but we still have um, there's still room for one more um, for one more kind of comment from you. And I guess I want to sort of make a final kind of question. I guess how can people support this ongoing campaign? And I guess what looking kind of the future, how you're going to kind of how this where this campaign is kind of going to go in terms of kind of next kind of steps. So yeah, I want to kind of hear your response to okay. that. So we are maintaining vigil while the destruction of the gardens is going on. Um, and we always have a, a presence there early in the morning from sort of 7 to 9. Um, if you come around, if you're passing by, please stop, talk with us, get a leaflet explaining our position and, and our vision of what the place could be. Um, we are... Um, intending to be there on the weekend as well when a majority of people come by and families with young children. Uh, take a look at the farm and see what is happening around the garden. The animals are disappearing. The place is becoming a market garden. Not saying the gardens are going to become market gardens, but the other parts of the, of the farm certainly are. So have a good look at how the, that amenity for all of the residents and beyond is actually changing. Write to Richard Wynne and tell him what you think about the whole development. It's, it's, it's only by putting pressure on the state government, and that's our local member, Richard Wynne, that we can hope to put any pressure on the Committee of Management of the farm to change tack and, and keep an eye on the overall farm. This isn't actually only about the gardens now. This is actually about a whole change in philosophy at our children's farm. And I'd say that's the war. That's, you know, that, that's, that's what we're going after now, is actually making crystal clear the larger scenario behind all of this and really trying to make people aware of how much this farm has changed in the two years that we were unable to go to it. And remember, it's a membership-based organisation. And not only that, but, you know, they're so nasty in their tactics that they actually um, threw out members of the gardens from the from the farm, they, they kind of nullified their membership in order to stop them standing for the AGM. That's how nasty they became. We took them to court. Those members are all back on the farm list. 
That was completely illegal. They are a membership-based organisation and they are not willing to put their vision in front of an AGM and have it voted upon. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's about democracy. Yeah, definitely. I think this definitely sounds, I think it absolutely sounds completely kind of despicable. Unfortunately, Andrea, we've, um, we're run, we've run out of um, time. We've got to kind of conclude this interview. I'd like to thank you very much for being on our program. And yes, I definitely want to encourage our listeners, um, especially since, um, our studio is actually next, uh, is quite close in clocks, clocks, clocks close proximity to uh, to the farm um, and to the community garden. And, yeah, I really encourage, you know, our listeners to, as um, Andrew kind of announced, you know, to definitely cut, get down there and support from 7 to 9 a.m. every every, mo- every morning on the weekday. Thank you. Thank you so much to everyone and to you. Thank you very much. All right. You're, we're just um, speaking to Andrea, Um um, Whitcomb, um, who is the president of the um, um, Collingwood Community Gardens Association, who which has been leading this campaign um, to save the Collingwood Community Gardens, which is at risk of being bulldozed. Um, but yeah, it's a very kind of common so- story with a lot of kind of community spaces, like any sort of prominent sort of community space um, that gets you know that gets utilised, etc. You know, capitalists and and profit always sort of thrives and you know always wants to take it away. They don't like spaces where there's no profit being generated. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, we're getting to um, the end of our program. I'd like to sort of just do one more, um, one big, one more plug for the FreeCR subscriber drive. Uh, essentially, FreeCR is aiming to have about up to a thousand subscribers um, this year. And, you know, we need your help to kind of reach it. And it's super easy to renew your sub, um, or getting a new one. And you can do it, you can do it by calling the station at 94198377 or going on our website at freecr.org.au. And also for anyone who's sort of listening, um, you know, we're having a special breakfast subscriber giveaway. If you renew your free CR subscription or join up as a new subscriber this week, you'll go into the running for a hamper created by Living Coco, supporters um, who are supporters of community-owned and run um, owned and run media. Living Coco empowers communities in the Pacific Islanders through um, fair ethical trade, creating indigenous foods, biodynamic cultivations, and cultural health systems. They create bespoke and organic kakul products from the Samoan Islands. So support them and freeze out at the same time. So yeah, you can call FreeCR at 94198377 or renew online at freecr.org.au. So yeah, um once again, um, I'll just go end this. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for being on our program this week. Um, Felix, do you have any kind of final comments to make? Oh, no, it's been a good program. Thanks for hosting Jacob and yeah, just uh like We've got some. Um, it's it's not a huge amount of money to subscribe to 3CR. Thirty five dollars for a concessional pension. So, uh, yeah, like don't think that it's a massive financial barrier. Just uh, just get out and subscribe. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the hosting the program, Jacob. Well, you also represent as well. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so yeah, like to thank all our listeners again, and stay tuned for I think what's coming up next um, is. Going to be another, I think Earth Matters is coming on after this program, a, a rerun. And yep, and um, like, yep, um, and stay tuned. This, um, we'll, we'll upload this as a podcast on the website. You're listening to Green Left Radio on freecr.org.au 855 AM.
This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.